It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. 17-14 at the final. One touchdown, we are world champions. Believe it, and it will happen. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com as well as the mobile app. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we are here to break down apparently a little bit of a teaser for the NFL schedule already for the Giants. And we'll get into that momentarily. Multiple ways you can interact with us here on the program. 201-939-4513. Hashtag Giants Chat on Twitter. And as a reminder, you can find the archive of this show and our entire podcast network on the Giants mobile app. Podcast platforms everywhere and at Giants.com slash podcast. So yesterday, Paul and I went into detail about the AFC East, the challenge those opponents present. We'll get maybe into the NFC West a little bit, but let's start off with the big news. And we had mentioned that the NFL was planning to tease a little bit some of the games prior to the formal release Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And the Giants are going to be playing for the second straight year on a holiday. Last year was Thanksgiving in Dallas. Well, be prepared as you're opening the presents under the Christmas tree and greeting Santa. It's Giants, Eagles, Philadelphia on December 25th. Ho, ho, ho. Yes, indeed. The, uh, the Giants have never played on Christmas before on the uh, December 25th date. They've had seven games in their history, uh, on nearly 100-year history now, where they've played on December 24th, the day before Christmas, including sure. last year against Minnesota, when they had that 1 o'clock in the afternoon game out in uh, Minneapolis. Uh, but the 25th, no. In fact, the NFL had totally avoided playing any games on December 25th until 1971. When the AFL and NFL merged back in 1970, became the NFC and the AFC, uh, it created a little bit of a quandary. And uh, with the way the schedule makers had, had booked the, the uh, months on the schedule. So in 1971, there was an AFC and an NFC playoff game held on Christmas Day. You will remember, even I know you're not alive at the time, Lance, you will remember the famous AFC playoff game because that's the legendary game when the Dolphins and Chiefs went at it and Yepremian and Stenerud wound up having a dramatic impact on that game before Stenerud finally got it done for them, for the, uh, for the, uh, um, for the Chiefs. Um, you know, I just, all I can say is, uh, I, I understand why a lot of folks will be upset. Um, I also think that to some degree, family and friends are together on the holiday anyway. What better way than to watch a football game? Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole thing behind Thanksgiving, right? Last year, everybody's together with their family, and you have football on in the background, or you have it as a piece of conversation. So there's going to be no different because it's going to be a triple header on Christmas. That's the NFL's plan this year, and it's yeah. unusual because it falls on a Monday as opposed to a weekend. Well, that that's the odd thing. Now, see... I remember watching the the, the Chiefs Miami game, and and again, your Premier and Stenerud were dueling with the with with the situation. Went into overtime. Actually, your Premier won the game. Your Premier won the game in overtime. It was not Stenerud. It was your Premier who won the game. But I remember we were at my grandmother's house, and we always used to celebrate Christmas at my grandmother's house, and we used to have at least two dozen people in in the in the place. And I remember that all the food, right was in the living room where the TV was. Sure. And most of the relatives, most of them, were not so much involved in the game. 
they were involved in the meal. But of course, me being at that time only seven years old, even though it was Christmas and I was a football junkie, I cared about the game. And I remember telling everybody, shh, I want to watch the game. I want to watch the game. And, and when they finally won the game in overtime, Miami, it was so cool because the game, had, had it was a dramatic, dramatic game. Everybody who, who remembers it will, will know very well. You can't forget it. And when Upremian finally won the game, everybody in the room was finally like enthralled with what happened at the end of the game because it was amazing how their attention had been diverted from the food and the celebration to the fact that, wow, the drama, the high drama of this overtime playoff game just kind of sucked them in. Sure. And it shows you the power of the NFL because, you know, my aunts, my cousins, my my female cousins and stuff, my mom, they didn't care about the game, right? Nobody cared. They got sucked into it. When the game went into overtime, everybody got sucked into it. Now I didn't have to tell anybody to be quiet because the (laughs) game was on grandma's TV and we're all watching the game. And it was high drama as Miami beat Kansas City. And so it turned into one of the more memorable Christmas uh, parties that, that that I can recall being a kid. At grandma's house when I was only seven years old. Well, and I think a big part of this conversation also circles around the fact that usually Christmas is reserved for the NBA, Paul, right? I mean, I'm not saying there haven't been games on Christmas in the National Football League, but if you talk about that day, Thanksgiving synonymous with the NFL. Well, the Knicks have often played on Christmas Day. is synonymous with the NBA. But over the last few years... The NFL all of a sudden has tapped into that day as well. Last year, for example, we had multiple games. The only thing that was different was it fell on a weekend. This is unusual because it's Monday, where there are always games on Monday, but normally it's the evening. This is going to be now football all throughout the course of the day. The Giants are going to have the middle game at 4.30 p.m. Eastern, which really is identical to Thanksgiving. Giants had the middle game against the Cowboys, right? At 4.30, the earlier game was the Lions, and then we had the primetime game. So... To me, I'm just looking at it. This is essentially pushing back what we experienced last year, a month earlier. Well, you know, somebody said to me, and, and because the comment was made, isn't Christmas Day the NBA's day? And it is. Sure. And I was like, yeah, it, it has been for a lot of years now, at least a decade, right? Oh, even at more least. than that, I would say. Okay. I mean, remember, Bulls Knicks played on Christmas in the 90s. Sure. Yeah. So my comment was, yeah, but it's also Monday. And Monday during football season is NFL day. Yep. So you can't expect the NFL to step aside on Monday just because it's Christmas. But then the counter again to from the other person was, well, do they have to have a triple header? You know, do they have to put meaning three games on? Couldn't they have just done the Monday night game and stuck to Monday night and not added? the earlier doubleheader games. Could have been an option. Sure. And and just had one Monday night game because, after all, it is Monday night football, and how could you possibly preempt Monday night football? I didn't have a comeback for that, to be honest with you. Well, what I would throw out, and remember, you learn from your experiences, not to say that we all want to go through the pandemic again, but I think the one thing the NFL learned from the pandemic was, Paul, remember when games got postponed and pushed back? We had a few Mondays where we had staggered games, if you yes, recall. sure. Not the conventional doubleheader. I'm talking about maybe like a 7 p.m. Eastern game, an 8.30 p.m. Eastern game, and maybe they learned something that, especially on Christmas, which is not a conventional day where people are out and about and working, they're home, 
what's the harm in putting on football all day long and making it a very unique Monday? I think that was probably part of the rationale. You know, I'm I'm a diehard Knicks fan, as you guys know. So for me, I always enjoyed once the NBA started to put the Knicks on Christmas Day, at least for a while there when they were good, and then well, they weren't so good. Very lengthy, <laughs> yeah, period of time they where they so were good not for a showcased while. on Christmas. And, yes. and so then they kind of let them disappear for a little bit. Now they've kind of brought them back. Yeah, uh, I look. I've always enjoyed watching the Knicks on Christmas as an adult. So to me. You know, whether it's the Knicks game or an NFL game, I'm I'm good with it. You know, I'm good with it. But, you know, that's just me. We all survived Thanksgiving. I'm sure everybody could survive Christmas and enjoy Giants football while they're around family and loved ones. So, I mean, to me, I don't think it's going to be that big of an adjustment. If anything, I think Thanksgiving was a good run-through to prepare everybody, (laughs) right, for what they're experiencing. Though, on a more serious note... Not that this is a surprise. We talked about this yesterday. Here's another example of a divisional game coming late in the season, right? Mm-hmm. Giants-Eagles. Yeah. So that's no surprise. And this, I think, would even elevate the rivalry a little bit more, right? I mean, all eyes are going to be on a game between two teams that met in the playoffs last year, that were competitive last year, both playoff teams. So, I mean, you figure, I'm sure the NFL took that into consideration. I mean, we don't know what the full schedule of Christmas games are, but if they're going to put two teams on Christmas, I think rivalry has to be one check mark. And the other thing is probably coming off a relatively strong season so that hopefully the likelihood will be they'll be able to pick up where they left off. Let me put it to you this way, Lance. I think the fans of both teams probably want that game to mean a lot because, you know, if it doesn't, then what does that tell you about? Well, it takes away from what does what does that tell you about your season? Yeah, you know, you want that game to be incredibly intense. You want it to be incredibly important. All the more to enjoy the holiday. What a feast to have delicious food, family, friends, and oh by the way, a salivating inducing game on the TV. How great is that? Here's the other thing. This relates to what we were talking about yesterday with respect to travel from the players and the Mm -hmm. coaching perspective. Going to Philly is not a very long trip, so you could still salvage Christmas from the players and the coaches' Mm -hmm. perspective. You know, the guys are not going to have a long trip back from Philadelphia once the game ends. They well, should be able it's a 4.30 game. Uh, well, but uh, able to get uh, back uh, at least in the late night hours if uh, family's still up uh, and share some opportunities. Uh, not really. Well, I mean, listen, I'm surprised. You know, aren't you a, a late night partier? You know, you should know about <laughs> well, I don't the sleep during the, the season well, that's anyway. What I'm saying. So, so what does people, it matter? Well, of all people, exactly. You should be happy that you'll be able to perhaps maximize no, some actually, hours No, actually, t- to be frank with you, I, I actually would rather, if you're going to play on a holiday, I'd rather the game be away so that you avoid the distraction of any of the home pressures anyway. Meaning spending time with the family earlier in the day before the game. Whatever it is. So this way, there's no commitments to deal with, okay? If, if, if I'm going to be with the team, or if I'm the coaches or I'm with the players, players and coaches, look, I get it. Everybody wants to have holidays with the family. That's fine. But if you're told we're going to play now on the holiday, that really kind of splits up your attention. There's going to be distractions. There's going to be commitments. There's going to be responsibilities. Got to see the in-laws. You know, got to see them. Got to see them. Got to open up presents. Got to do this. Got to do that. And you're trying to jam that in around your last-minute prep for the game and then actually on game day. So for me... I'm thinking that the coaches and the players would actually rather, if you're going to play on the holiday, I think they're better off playing it on the road where they can just, look, 
Wipe your hands clean. Makes sense. No yeah. responsibilities. No distractions. Travel we'll the day to, before. It's a business trip. We're going to play the game. It's better for focus on the game if you're away than home on a holiday. At least that's how I would see it. No, it's a valid point. I would say, though, I'd be curious, even if you ask most players who have home games on Thanksgiving, for example, right? The Lions and the Cowboys play on Thanksgiving every single year. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious how many of those players do something prior to the game with their family. I would say probably not a lot. They wait to do something after. First of all, the Lions, if you're playing at 12.30 p.m. Eastern, I mean, how much are you possibly doing before the game? You don't have a lot of leeway. And even the Cowboys game, right. which is 4.30. So, no, I understand your point. I'm just wondering, even if you were home, I don't know how much wiggle room you'd have to be with the family. I uh, Again, I, I don't know. Certainly the Lions would because if they're playing their early game they could do everything with the family after but the after, game. But after. But, but how many coach, how many comedy players and coaches want to do that, though? After the game? After a game? Well, that could be... Isn't that better can, off? The game's done, though. Yeah, but sometimes you're exhausted, and you just don't really well, need I think to, You don't need the responsibility during the course of the NFL regular season. But, but here's the other thing, too. Okay, the day before, okay, the day before, if you're on a road trip, the team is exclusively focused on the game the exactly. day before. Yep. Now, if you're home on holiday... There's a lot of prep going on at home, whether or not you're taking care of prep or the missus is taking care of the prep or the kids are doing this or that, or you're, you're telling people, well, look, I got a game on, on tomorrow. Let's have the dinner the day before. There are, there are too many distractions. I'm sorry. I, I, I think it's better for coaches and players to be away for the holiday because it allows them to 100% focus on the game and the business at hand. That's my opinion. Well, I mean, listen, I think there are pros and cons on both sides of the coin, but especially in this case where it's not a long business trip, I don't think it's necessarily a negative, no matter how you want to spin it, at least for the Giants. The other thing, takeaway-wise, remember, we only have a small piece of the puzzle, but if they're playing on Monday, you assume it could very well be a short week for the next game, too. I would That's be the shocked if the NFL stuck them with a Monday night game, even a home game, Correct. before Thursday in Philadelphia. I'd be shocked. No, but I'm also talking about the opposite side, too. You figure probably we're looking at a Sunday game coming off of the game on Monday against Philadelphia in Philly, too. I'm looking at it also opposite after the game. You're looking oh, I at see what you mean. Coming into the game. Yeah. yeah, coming into the game, you figure, no, they probably are going to be playing a Sunday game or a Saturday game, depending on, obviously, how the calendar right, plays right, out. But right. I'm talking about after. That's right. There's also going to be a short turnaround. because, And remember, you're late in the season. That's why I'm bringing that up. You know, you could deal with maybe the short turnarounds early in the season. Late in the season, when you have a lot more divisional play, and each and every game is that much more important, just things to take into consideration. That's more mm-hmm. of a reason why I go back to, if you're going to be on a short turnaround, better you have a quick trip to Philly where you're coming oh, back no doubt. soon as opposed to taking a flight and having to go somewhere. <clears throat> Look, it's one of the reasons why, from a logistical perspective, f- folks, I, I know it's hard sometimes to understand this, but the grind of the season can really wear on these coaches, not just the players who physically have to put it out uh, there on the field, but it can really wear on these coaches. Sure. So you want the easier trips to be at the end of the schedule. So that... Just physically, you got a little more energy left. Okay, so for example, the Giants have, we've discussed this, road games in Arizona, Las Vegas, and San Francisco. Trust me, absolutely trust me, the earlier that those games are in the schedule, the better. 
Even the Dallas road game, you want that earlier if you can get it. Maybe in the middle would be okay. You don't want to be making the longer road trips. And Dallas isn't horribly long, but it's long enough. You don't want the longer road trips in the last five or six weeks of the season because you already kind of burned a bunch of fuel. And, you know, so so already finding out that that tiny little road trip to Philadelphia on the back end of the schedule, uh, that's that's a good thing. And it would highly be unlikely that you would have a lot of those West Coast road trips buried at the tail end of the season only because if they could They're not divisional, divisional games. play. They're not right. divisional games. It would games. be very surprising if that was the case. But you could have— There a, could be one or one two of them. Correct, mixed in within divisional play to divvy it up. That's could very happen because they're not going to give you— you know, no, they're not three division, five straight games. Three division like games to wrap it out. Yep. I mean, you talked about it yesterday. Last year's schedule was incredibly weighted. Not just heavy, but incredibly weighted. Yeah, five of the last seven. With with the NFC East. I don't know that it's gonna be that heavily weighted again. I, I would I'm gonna guess that four out of the seven is the most you're gonna see. Lance Meadow, Paul DeTito with you here on the latest edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on this Wednesday, focusing on the fact that it was announced earlier today the Giants will visit the Eagles on Christmas Day in the upcoming season. An opportunity for you to weigh in at 201-939-4513. That is the telephone number. Let's open up the lines. Kevin's in Florida joining us here on BBKL. What's happening, Kevin? What do you got for us? How are you today, guys? Appreciate your show. Hi. You do a great job. Well, appreciate Thank it. You. Thanks for tuning in. So what do you got? I've got a simple question. Um, I just noticed watching film and watching games, Saquon Barkley, when he runs to his left, I don't see him. He keeps the ball on his dominant arm, his right arm. He never transfers the ball to his left arm and uses his right arm as a stiff arm. Unless I'm mistaken on that. I'm I, I can't. Coach, well, coach let, let me just say, I'm, I don't know if he's done that all the time, but I absolutely am aware of what you're talking about because I have seen it a number of times. Is it exclusively? I'm not sure. I'm not ready to take that jump with you yet. But you are right. I have many a times seen that. I was under the impression, and I don't know because I haven't spoken to Barkley about it specifically, but I have talked to coaches and fellow running backs who have said to me, you know what, the right arm is always, the correct arm, I should say, is always preferable. However, if the player feels as though he's got it secure in the arm that he's got it in, to make the transfer is probably more risky and not worth the risk of actually making the switch. And so if Barkley in his own mind feels, I've got the ball, I've got it secure, I'm not having a problem with fumbleitis, and this is how I feel the most comfortable, I'm just going to hold it as tight as I can and go as long and as far as I can, well then God bless him. And the fact remains, he has not had fumble problems uh, either at Penn State or with the Giants. So if that's his rationale, and I'll check with him next time I see him, um, then fine. The, the, the Giants obviously don't have a problem with it. That's a, that's a valid point, Paul. Very valid point. All right, Kevin. Appreciate the that's phone call. Have a good yeah, day. You got it. Take care. Interesting observation. I can't say that it's necessarily an absolute track record of his. I've had the conversation. After seeing him do it a number of times, that is Barkley, I did ask a few people. I didn't talk to him about it specifically, but I did ask some running backs about it and some coaches about it. And they said, no, you know what? We understand what's preferable, but it's not an absolute. 
And once again, if the player has a good track record and holding on to the football, I wouldn't question it because the last thing you want to do is then force him to switch the ball in the process of that, and then he starts coughing up the football too. I would like to see him catch up or, or clean up his hands on some of those passes, though. He does have a little bit of dropsies in terms of catching the, the short pass out of the backfield. He's had a few too many of those during his Giants career. But fumbling the football, that's really not been an issue. So we're moving along here on Big Blue Kickoff Live, focusing on the schedule release, which is coming your way Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Yesterday we were talking about the AFC East, and the other division that the Giants are facing this season is the NFC West. That's why we were talking about a lot of West Coast road trips on the schedule this year, which is obviously going to create a little bit more of a challenge in comparison to last year. This NFC West division was interesting this past season because you had the Rams deal with Massive number of injuries, so they came back down to earth. Arizona also was struck by the injury bug. The emergence of the Seahawks with Geno Smith, and we saw Seattle add another wide receiver in Jackson Mm -hmm. Smith and Jigba in the draft. So you also look at the San Francisco 49ers transitioning to a new quarterback. It's either going to be Brock Purdy, it's going to be Trey Lance. That remains to be seen, but you know Kyle Shanahan and his scheme and the run game Mm -hmm. and the way they utilize guys in open space keeps them very competitive. There's a little bit of an unknown, I think, hovering over this division, right? I don't know if there's an absolute favorite. I wouldn't pin that on any team, and I would expect it to be a race between at least three of the four teams this year, especially based on what they've been able to do in recent history. Well, I think both teams are going to look at themselves, or both divisions, as we'll send the champion into the playoffs, but it's going to be really hard to get a wild card because the other divisions in the conference are a lot weaker, I think. Well, I think the NFC South with the quarterback change across the board other than Derek Carr coming to the Saints and Aaron Rodgers is no longer Mm -hmm. in the North could you see I mean there have been years where the NFC West flirted with three teams going into the playoffs it's not crazy it's happened but I think those right now are the two divisions the, the ones you just talked about as being the most difficult and there are some unknowns there don't get me wrong we discussed the NFC East yesterday there are some unknowns but but I think that you're going to have teams button heads against each other. And then, of course, there are some divisional crossover games between yeah. those two divisions also. I just I think it's going to be very hard for teams out of those two divisions to, uh, to scramble for wildcard spots. Well, the one thing I pointed out last season, which I think has been noticeable if you look at how the NFC East played out last year, when they moved to 17 games, Paul, not saying divisional play is not important. That's not my point. But it used to be six games out of 16. Mm-hmm. Now it's six out of 17. So mm-hmm. technically, you have more games that you're actually playing outside of the division, which is why I think you saw the NFC East last season have, first of all, three teams make the mm-hmm. playoffs. And then secondly, you know, we were also talking about three teams potentially flirting with double-digit wins too, which is not easy to do no, in today's not. NFL landscape. Now that was it's a not. product, right, of you talk about, well, the NFC East beat up on those divisions that were weaker last season. So that can present a pathway for you to have three teams that could A, get to 10 wins, and B, ultimately make the playoffs. So I wouldn't rule that out. The problem is the NFC East is playing the AFC East this year. 
We talked about that yesterday. Sure. Yeah. So I don't think the NFC East is going to have three 10-win no, teams No, and I'm this with year. you, but I'm looking at it more from the NFC West perspective. Okay. That's okay. what I was looking at, yeah, to clarify. The, the NFC West, which is their AFC? Are they AFC? Are Let they me, playing I can the AFC West this year? I'm going to look up. I don't, the, know, I don't know what their rotation is. Well, we could find that out real quickly. That's but I problem. do think the NFC West is going to be a very competitive division. Yeah. Very and, competitive. And I think that you had a lot of teams that are going to get personnel back, right? Because they were mm-hmm. dealing with injuries. You know, you remove Matthew Stafford from the Rams. That changes things. And they also had several different running backs. The Niners, I think, will have a little bit more stability after they mm-hmm. went through three different quarterbacks. Mm-hmm. Geno Smith, year really three now for him. Remember, he played a bulk of the time when Russell Wilson got I hurt. still can't believe how he turned his career around. I really can't. I, I don't yeah. know how that happened. That is one of the most miraculous stories that I've ever seen. And I know that Oakland fans, old Oakland fans, will talk about Jim Plunkett, who flamed out with the Patriots and then the 49ers and then wound up becoming a Super Bowl winner with the Raiders. I get that, okay? But Geno Smith is a pretty miraculous turnaround himself. So they play the AFC North, the NFC West which is no picnic. Mm. They get the Steelers, the Ravens, mm. the Browns, and the Bengals. Mm. That's their division. Very similar to the NFC East. Okay, I'm going back to what I said three no, that's minutes fine. ago. Hey, it's I going mean, to be hard to put together three 10-win teams in that division. It will. But could you see two teams out of the NFC West? I don't think that's a stretch. I think we could see two representatives because— Maybe two, but more than two is going to be really hard. That's the beauty of the NFL. It looks intimidating on paper, I know. right? And then you just I know. don't know how things are going to play out. That's why the game of speculation continues to ensue when it comes to this league. Let's uh, head back to the phone lines. Coach Marvin, he's in Delaware. He joins us here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Coach Marvin? How you doing, Lance and Paul? Doing right. What's on your mind? Uh, well, well, I was calling. I was calling about the last call when they were talking about Barkley, and I said this. I think it was last year or the year before that he does carry it. He may not do it every time, but consistently he carries it in the wrong hand. I'm surprised teams don't attack the ball um, because he does. If you go back, you can even go back to his highlights and you can see he hits the sideline. I always tell my guys, once you hit, get outside those hash marks and you're, you're heading to the sideline, the defender's coming from the inside. Sure. So you yeah. automatically, it should be something automatically done. You don't even think about it. You, it just happens. Your hands just automatically switches over because his, your inside hand you want to use to fight off the defender. Um, he and a lot of times I'm very surprised teams have not attacked the ball or tried to punch it out. He he hasn't fumbled. He does well with it. Um, but I would if I was coaching and I would probably just tell him, hey, you got to be considerate of that. Use your your inside hand to fight off the tackle. So automatically you want to turn the ball to your outside because if you do fumble, at least you got the sideline to get the ball to out of bounds. You know what, and Coach? You want to you're, you're, you're obviously, that, that's the, the football 101 way to do it. We, we yes. understand that. That's the smart way. That's the way you instruct them to do it. But again, Barkley must have a personal preference on it. And when you consider the fact that he's only got four fumbles in his five years in the league, and we're talking about 954 carries – and 247 receptions, okay? So that's nearly 1,200 touches, and he's only got four fumbles. Clearly, he's comfortable doing it the way he is, and the coaches are not going to mess with that. 
Well, and right, you also right. I mean, figure that he had conversations, I'm sure, with various coaches that he's had. I'm sure. And the fact that that still hasn't changed leads me to believe that there's also a comfort level right. between the player right. and the coach based on what he's been doing. Let me check on and his I, uh, college numbers. Go ahead, Coach. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do that while no. you talk. Well, I'm sure he, he – because he didn't fumble a lot in college either, and, and it might be muscle memory more than just being comfortable. I think he may be comfortable, but once you get comfortable in that, it's just muscle memory because, like I said, the guys that normally do it, muscle memory tells you switch hands. He's coming. I'm sure. going to fight him off with my inside hand. So a lot of it's just muscle memory, and he's so comfortable with it that he doesn't even think about it while he's doing it. And I'm just the only thing that I'm working for the Department of Justice. We're always looking to avoid things happening rather than waiting for it to happen and then try to figure out how we stop it. So I would be looking at how do I avoid it from ever happening? I don't want to see it happen at all. So sometimes I'll, you, you bring those things up. So I'm just bringing it up because it would be interesting to see if teams are picking that up. And they haven't. Apparently they haven't because I never see anybody actually attack the ball with him. And well, maybe it's his footwork and he's, he's shaking them and they – they just don't think about trying to get the ball, trying to get them down. Well, so. it's interesting because I'm actually I'm looking through some of his highlights from this past season, and actually in week one he had obviously the big touchdown run against Tennessee, but there was another run when the Giants were going left to right, and he got out uh-huh. into open space, and he once again he was holding the ball in his right hand, so towards the interior where the defense can knock it out, and the ball was poked out from behind, though, not from the side. Now, right. you could argue if uh-huh. he was holding it in his left hand, the defender still could have poked it out from behind. That wouldn't have made a difference. If it was poked right. out from the interior defender, then I think right. it's more of a talking point. But whether you're holding it right or left, you can easily get it poked out from behind. That, to me, makes no oh, difference. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't make any difference. And Even if he put it in the right, if he moves it to the outside, it doesn't make a difference sometimes. It just gives you better odds that it'll fall out of bounds. Sure. It's not nothing's guaranteed. Well, but but in fairness, coach, think- no, no, I I didn't mean to cut you off. But also, if you're a defender and you're coming from the interior, you're also forcing that defender to reach over the body of Saquon to try to poke the ball out, assuming he's not on the exterior. It's just like in basketball, when you're driving to the lane, if you have a defender coming towards you on the left side of the basket, you go up with your right hand, you're making it easy for the defender to block it, whereas if you go up with your left, now the defender has to reach over in the attempt to block the shot. So it's a very similar I, I, parallel I, from that standpoint. I understand that. And, you, and, and those are valid, valid points. But going back to what Paul said, if you're teaching the game one-on-one, that's not how you teach it. You teach it to say, hey, you got to switch the hand. And, yeah, he could poke it off because he taught to reach over. But if I can stiff arm him, my arm is going to be longer than his for him to reach over and try to get to the ball. If I can get to fight them all. So we can look at it. Again, it's nothing 100%. Because you're right, Lance. But how many times that happens? I can be right. But how many times I'll be right? I'm just trying to cut the odds down to where it don't happen as often as it can. You can punch it from the back is exactly right. You can fumble at any time. Uh, you can put it in the correct hand and fumble. And fumble, sure. I'm just yeah. trying to. I'm yeah. just trying to cut it down the odds of yeah. someone actually getting it more often than not. Yeah, and, I mean, and that's what. Sure, about. you're doing a preventative measure, and appreciate the phone call. Thanks for giving us a ring, Coach Marvin. Completely understand. I just once again, I go back to. I find it hard to believe that in his entire career thus far, 
Not one coach had a conversation with Saquon about that after observing it in a mm-hmm. practice or on the field. And then the end of the conversation was not to at least find ways to adjust. I think there was probably maybe some experimentation, but the bottom line is they got to a point where, hey, Saquon, this is the way you're comfortable. You've been very good in ball security. Continue to do what you're doing. And I agree with the caller's point, Paul. Preventative measures are great. I mean, you always want to do something and get a player used to it so that you don't have to revisit something later on in the season. But if it's natural for him to keep it in that strong hand, even if it's on the interior, I'm sure that's been brought up time and time again. I am really digging hard here to find out if he had any fumbles at Penn State. And Well, but, but once again, Paul, I, I I'm wanna... looking and I'm not... I'm not able to find it. But then again, I'd be curious. This is where context comes into the conversation. Just like I brought up that Tennessee play. The ball was poked out from behind. Whether it's in the strong hand or the weak hand, you Mm -hmm. could argue the ball can easily be poked out. Even if he fumbled at Penn State, I'd be curious, well, how did the fumble happen? Did the fumble happen because it was on the interior hand? Or did it happen because the defender from behind wound up knocking it loose? That changes the conversation too. Yeah, even the uh, Penn State's uh, actual official football individual breakdown site does not have offensive fumbles and how many guys uh, lost the ball or, or even had knocked away and recovered it themselves. It, it, I, don't, I don't have it. I don't ever remember him being flagged for fumbleitis when he came into the draft. And as I've already given the numbers out since he's come to the Giants, it has not been an issue. And ultimately... It goes back to the old mantra. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And regardless of when he may have been asked to do so, um, if he was even asked, he's going to carry the ball how he's most comfortable because that's how he has become the superstar that he is. And they're not going to change it. There's no reason to. Sure. Few reminders before we move on here on the program. Giants Huddle Podcast, you can check that out on your favorite podcast platform where you can go to giants.com slash podcast. Giants fans, take your fandom to the next level with a season ticket membership. Stay connected to the club all year round, not just on game days. Memberships are now available for the 2023 season. To learn more about all the exclusive member benefits, visit giants.com slash tickets. Limited inventory is available. And the Giants official connected TV streaming app. It's Giants TV. It brings you original video content, game highlights on demand, and direct to Big Blue fans. Giants TV is free. It's on Apple TV, Roku, Amazon Fire TV, and the Giants mobile app. Not to get off topic, but it reminds me of the conversation, Paul, that you and I had when we were talking about John Michael Schmitz, right? There's different ways for a center to snap the ball. So what do you base it on? Well, what makes the quarterback comfortable? If the quarterback's uncomfortable, you're going to adjust, right, how you snap the ball. But if Daniel Jones turns around and says, John, continue to do what you were doing in college. I have no problem. Why would John then change things up if that's what he's used to doing? For example, and I think you can see this in the camera, there are some quarterbacks who will hold the ball this way and other quarterbacks who want their pointy finger on the back of the end of the, of the ball, back on the nose of the ball. All right, you guys can see that on camera. I mean... However you get it done. Yeah. That's that's what matters. Yeah. Are there preferred methods that give you better odds to succeed? Yes, there are. But if somehow you wound up coming through the ranks and found a way that worked for you and made you successful, well, this is not the time necessarily to start tweaking that and changing it. Yeah, especially a little bit later on in your career. Another 
reminder of this conversation in basketball, a free throw shooter, Paul. How many times have you seen a guy go to the line, he has the most awkward free throw attempt? Oh, yeah, you've seen, sure. Right? So, sure. You, so you say to yourself, guy's been in the league for 10 years. You're going to tell me a coach didn't have a conversation with him about tweaking it? You're too young to remember Rick Barry, right? No, I know. Exactly. You know Rick Barry? Yeah, okay. Underhand free throw shooter. Rick Barry. Now, He's one of the greats in NBA history. And one of the finest free throw shooters you'd ever want to see anywhere. Yep. I mean, Rick Barry, and look, I get it. It's underhanded. Nobody does that anymore. You know, Chamberlain used to do it for what a while Bob that way. Cousy? I'm surprised you didn't bring up Bob Cousy. Uh, well, he's you even... remember Bob Cousy, right, don't you? Yes, I do, actually. I don't know about it. Are you sure? No, I do, actually. Well, you, because you grew up watching him play. Remember when uh, at you the end of his career. To the side? Okay. At the very end of his yeah. career. Yes, I do remember gotcha. Bob Cousy. Okay. Uh, but but uh, certainly Chamberlain, you know, did it. You know, and, and Barry did it. And Barry was outstanding as a free throw shooter. Yep. But, you know, you don't see people doing it. It's it worked for him. That's all that mattered. I was going to bring up Bill Cartwright. He didn't do the underhand free throw, but he had a very unique jump shot. Yes, he did. Former Nick, who then went is traded for. Charles and we've Oakley. already established that you're a big Knicks fan, closet yes. Knicks fan, but you are a very big Knicks fan. Don't believe everything you Let's hear on this program. Let's go, Bakers tonight, baby. Go yeah. New York. Go New York. Go. See, that was the reason why you brought that up in the conversation. So you could just mention that randomly. I brought up the basketball as an X's and O's yes. football comparison, and you had to take us to the dark yes. side. Okay, fair enough. Let's now try to return to planet Earth here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Scott is in New Mexico. He joins us here on BBKL. What's happening, Scott? Uh. Everything's happening, but uh, I've had two bouts of COVID in three weeks. Oh, boy. So. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. I hope you're feeling better. Get better. ASAP. Yes, uh, I, I, I'm finally testing negative, so I feel Well, that is good better. to hear. Wonderful. Um, in regards to your basketball, I was lucky enough to see the, the Knicks championship game in 68 uh, when they had Willis Reed and Dave DeBusher and 69. Bill Bradley. But go ahead. Uh, the reason I'm mentioning it, they didn't have a player over 6'10". Uh, Nat Holman, I think, was the tallest player they had. And they were so good at what they did mm-hmm. uh, that they destroyed the Lakers in that last game. And that was just, and Willis Reed probably played maybe three minutes of the game. But they were that good. And the reason I'm bringing it up it has something related to the strength of schedule uh, that we're talking about. The Nick, excuse me, the Giants are perceived as having a going to have a more difficult schedule, but the schedules are based on the opponent's winning percentages, and I want to make sure I'm not confused with that. From the previous season. From the previous season, correct. correct. Right, yes. And what I was looking at, uh, I looked at the Kansas City Chiefs, who had the fifth hardest schedule, and of course they won the Super Bowl. Uh, San Francisco also was tied with them for the fifth hardest schedule, and they made the playoffs. Cincinnati, the same thing. I think they were third hardest schedule. You know, the Los Angeles Rams decimated their team, but they had the hardest schedule of everybody. So is it in a way irrelevant yes. uh, about, strength of, about strength of schedules because it really more uh, impacts the players themselves, who you have on the team? 100%. Uh, Scott, I think you answered your own question. I don't mean to cut you off. I mean, I've brought this topic up with Paul tons and tons of times. I cannot stand when people reference the strength of schedule. It's irrelevant because how much have the rosters changed, Scott? Correct. And that was my point. Why are we talking about how good a team was the previous year when they've changed a third of their roster? What matters more are the matchups. 
you have Correct. to look at the teams you're going to play and say, well, how do you think you're going to match up against those teams, and how competitive do you think those games are going to be? Right. So to strictly look at the winning percentages of last year is hollow. That means right. nothing. So in regards to the Giants, the Giants made a lot of changes uh, for the better, I think, this year, and they're a stronger team, at least on paper. Mm-hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what will happen on the field. But that being said, the the only thing that's glaring to me uh, that can make a difference is the offensive line. They obviously help themselves with John Michael Schmitz. Obviously, everybody's raving about him, so I'm assuming he is as advertised. But I worry about the two guards, and I also worry about a little bit Evan Neal. Uh, not because he's not a great player, simply because he had the injury, and I don't know how good or bad he is as yet. So looking at the team and the offensive line, are there still changes that you perceive that Brian Dable might have to make to make that a really strong unit? Because if they are, they seem to have helped themselves out immensely on the defensive line side. I know there's a lot of players uh, that they have on the offensive line, but I wanted to get your perspective of what you think uh, the Giants' offensive line will look like, and do they have the players? Uh, Azuto's still an unproven commodity. McKeithen I don't know very much about because he didn't play. And I know about Klowinski. I know, uh, obviously, about the other guys as well that they have. But can they sustain against the teams like Philadelphia, which has obviously helped themselves with the interior linemen that they've drafted? And I wanted to know, can they match up? Do you think they can match up? Because if they can, they have the outside weapons to deal uh, with the Philadelphia defense. But it's the offensive line that concerns me. And I'll be glad to take your answers off the air, guys. Right, but Scott. I wanted to hear yep. your perspective. Appreciate the call. I will say this, and I say it every year, it's all about being functional. The line has to be functional so that you don't have to eliminate plays out of your playbook. That's the requirement, okay? They don't have to be all pros. They don't have to be phenomenal. They don't have to be a brick wall, okay? They've got to be functional. Now, keeping in mind the teams in your division, obviously there are really good defensive fronts in the NFC East. So what you need from your offensive line At its very minimum, it's got to be functional enough so that when you go into those games, you are not hampered in running your playbook. That's it. They've just got to be good enough to be there. If they are, everything else is gravy. If they turn out to be excellent and better than just functional, well, all the more. That makes your job even easier. But as long as you can run your full complement of plays and you're not stunted, you're not hindered by their abilities, now you can go in on an even keel and say, okay, we can outcoach this team, we can outplay this team, we can make the plays that we need to make to win. But if your O-line is sub-functional, which the Giants have had in a lot of past years and previous seasons, you go in with a handicap and and i'm not i'm not saying that to be funny but you know okay we're not going to win the line uh there are certain things we can't even think about putting into the game plan because we're at a disadvantage it's really that simple and i believe the giants feel like they're starting five offensive linemen this year if it goes as according to planned will at least be functional i believe they think that and I think part of that is stability. 
you know, the same players being in the lineup. Now, granted, they had John Feliciano at center for the bulk of last season. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that was a revolving door, but John Michael Schmitz here is a new player getting used to two new guards and also has not played one snap in his NFL career. Exactly. There will be. My response to the last question would be, see, I think you're going to learn a lot based on the initial matchups in the NFC East. But the problem is, when are those initial matchups in the NFC East going to happen? Case in point, if you look at the schedule last year, they played Tennessee and Carolina. Then they played Dallas in Week 3. And if you remember, the Cowboys had a great deal of success in the trenches in that game. And Mm -hmm. Dak did not play, but Demarcus Lawrence was very effective, especially against the interior of the Giants' offensive line. So I think you watched the first two games and you felt, okay, not bad, especially with their ability to run the ball in Tennessee. And then the third game was not necessarily as smooth sailing as the first two, which goes back to it's a matchup-based league. My curiosity would not be answered until I would see maybe the first go-around against the NFC East opponents. And you look at the schedule last year, and I'm not saying it's going to be identical. They played the Cowboys, and that was it. Paul, they didn't play another NFC East opponent until Week 13 Mm -hmm. when they played Washington. Excuse me, Dallas in Week 12. This is why the schedule is impactful to the fortunes of your team. If we go back to 2020, when the Giants were still in a scramble to try to rebuild their offensive line, and they started the season with Pittsburgh, Chicago, San Francisco, the Rams, Dallas, Washington, and Philadelphia. Those first seven games presented a huge challenge Involving defensive fronts that, quite frankly, did a job on that offensive line. And the Giants were 1-6 after those first seven games because they couldn't win the line of scrimmage worth a damn. That's why the schedule is important. Because coming out of the box, this Giants offensive line is going to be trying to find its sea legs. Okay? Whether or not... It's Schmitz because he's brand new or because of Zudu because he's still relatively green and had limited experience last year. There will be growing pains. And those first two to three weeks of the season, you would hope from the Giants' perspective, and the league doesn't care about this. They care about how they've got to satisfy their network partners. But if you're the Giants' coaching staff, you would rather not face the tougher defensive fronts the first two to three weeks of the season. Well, so that the group gets going together, chemistry-wise. Sure. I I remember Nick Gates said to me that opening day against the Steelers back in 2020, about a month later, I'm talking to Nick Gates, and Nick said to me, "Uh, I had no idea what I was dealing with. He said, to be frank with you, he said, Knowing what I know now, even five weeks into the season, I know so much more now. I am so much better prepared now. He said, facing Pittsburgh right out of the gate, that defensive front, he said, there's no way in the world that I could have handled that. He said, said, we did everything we could do, but that was an absolute monster to prepare for and to deal with. And he's like, I wish I could play them now because I'd be in in better position to fight them. You're going up against Cam Hayward, who's a a seasoned veteran. It's a rude awakening for a young guy like that. Not to mention the Blitzkrieg packages that that front uses. Yeah, Dupree. Okay. Sure. So that's why the schedule matters. Okay. That's what are your idiosyncrasies that you want to look for when this schedule comes out. 
What do those defensive fronts pose in terms of matchup problems for the Giants in the first month of the season when their offensive line is going to try to start gelling? That's going to be a key you want to look for. Especially with a rookie center. Now, I will say this. We've been focusing on the NFC East, and I said you'd like to maybe get some early tests just to get a better idea. But Not me. The Jets, the Niners... You play those teams early in the season. I would, I would no, rather I know what play your preference a is. weaker defensive front early in the season. I get that. but Because the test that you're talking about is probably poison. No, but for example... Like they, it was when they played the Steelers a couple of years no, ago. But the example I was using from last year, where you played Tennessee and Carolina the first two weeks, then you got Dallas week three. If you play an NFC East opponent maybe week four, I mean, I think you're now giving them three games to now, okay, let's see where this group... All right. Fine. Right. Week four? Yeah. I'm okay. okay. Sign me up for that. Well, I mean, I'm once okay. again, I'm okay the that. NFL is not looking out for but the just, but just, of an offensive But just, line. Don't, just don't give me three other tough defensive lines in the first three weeks before that fourth well, game. And that, what I was getting at was that it's not just the NFC East. If you want to look at the schedule overall, I'm just perusing and off the top of my head in terms of teams that I would be concerned about defensive front-wise. The Jets and the Niners absolutely answer that call. New Orleans, I think, is a very underrated group, even though they lost some personnel. Miami had some flashes last season. Here's going to be another year where that unit is together. So, you know, those are three teams. And then Buffalo, too, I would throw into the conversation. I think the jury is out with the Rams. Yes, they do have Aaron Donald. We'll see what happens with the pieces around them. Leonard Floyd, for example, is still a free agent. Seattle has brought in some young guys, but the secondary is very good. Arizona, New Orleans, Green Bay, I'm not so sure that those fronts are that devastating. Well, New Orleans was one of those teams I wouldn't all of a sudden overlook. I think they're a bit of an underrated group. Green Bay and Arizona, I'll give you, where they're still a, a very much working okay. progress. So, so how, yeah. how about we push Green Bay and Arizona into the September part of the schedule? I get you. I understand. <laughs> yeah, well, especially if they play Arizona early in the season, maybe that would help spread out the West Coast road trips, too. That could be another there you way go. of See? looking at it. No, all I'm saying is is that, Paul, you have to be prepared that it may not cooperate. No, I know it may not cooperate. That's what I'm getting at here. It didn't cooperate in 2020, and that was part of the reason things fell apart so quickly. Well, and that's why I think it goes back to the caller's question about what we expect jump-wise from this offensive line. I think you need to be aware of who they're playing and when they're playing before you rush to judgment about where the group is. So, for example, if they play NFC East opponents, the Jets, the Niners, I would say you're going to learn a lot about this unit. If they don't see those teams until later on, you could feel encouraged, but the true litmus test has not arrived is my point. That's fine. And no, well, once again, it's a you fair know. question, though. Oh, it's and, it's absolutely, and it's relevant. I'm glad he brought it up because it does it does allow you to open up the conversation to these other angles as to why the schedule is actually more important than people think. It does have an impact. And then also, as you play teams later on the season, we don't know from a health perspective what shape they're in. I mean, right now no we're talk, we're talking about teams how great they look on paper. Talk mm-hmm. to me in week 13. That's another reason why no you doubt. can't get too caught up in strength of schedule because you just you have no idea what the opponent looks like. I mean, how many times have the Giants gone up against the team where the quarterback is banged up? Or what about the year when Daniel Jones got hurt at the tail end of the season? 
And then all of a sudden, it became a merry-go-round. Teams going in to facing the Giants early in the season, Paul, they said, we're going to be facing Daniel Jones. Then you get to week 15, Daniel Jones is not available because yeah. he got hurt against the Eagles. Jones missed uh, well, a yeah. month and a half of that yeah. season a couple so, of I years mean, ago. And then Mike Glennon and Jake Fromm had to clean things up. And yep. I guarantee you those other teams were salivating at that opportunity. That's more of a reason why I think you look at it from a big-picture perspective. You take it in. You look at geography, travel. Those are the initial early takeaways from how the schedule breaks down. How these teams are going to look, impossible to tell, especially if you're playing them later on in the season. But we were just going back to the topic that we were talking about earlier with respect to the NFC West. It's a very intriguing division for me because I Mm -hmm. still think there's a lot of unknown and there's teams that even if you don't feel great about their offense, I think you feel pretty good about the defensive side of the ball, especially for the Niners and that Seahawks secondary. They may be sniffing Legion of Boom territory again based on who they have on the roster, who they drafted. Remember, they brought in Devin Witherspoon. They added Julian Love, of course, who Giants fans are familiar with. There's a lot of depth in the secondary compared to what that Seattle group looked like last year. And you know, Paul, even if you don't love the front, if the secondary could cover well, they could buy time for the guys up front to make plays. That could be the dynamics in play for the Seahawks defense this year. I will tell you from being with the Giants in Seattle several times over the years, that has not been a fun place to play. A lot of really bad things have happened to the Giants out there. So it is... Uh, the good news is they're coming here. I was just going yeah. to say, it's a little <laughs> bit better to see that Seattle has to come here this time. That's, uh, yeah, the great Pacific Northwest has not been so great to Big Blue. No. And if you had Seattle on top of Las Vegas, San Francisco, and Arizona, I mean, that's about oh, a quarter man. of your schedule. Well, Pete, was it? Pete Carroll's got like a 700-something winning percentage since he's been the Seahawks coach at home. I, they, that, they that's just, why they talk about the 12th man all oh, the time. They're so hard to beat in their building. Yeah. Well, and that's why they're also going to be challenged within the division, which is interesting from the Giants' perspective because they're playing all four of those teams. So it, it's very much going to tell an awful lot based on who the Giants have early in the season. But at least at this point, we know they're playing on Christmas, so you can plan accordingly. And then the only other element that was announced is we know the international games, but the Giants don't have to worry about that because they're not going overseas for the second straight year. And tomorrow we will actually you know from start to finish, and you will be able to do your analysis where you put the schedule into the microscope and have all of your takeaways and how much mileage they will have to travel. I don't calculate the mileage, but I do a lot of other stuff. Well, there you go. So if that's not a (laughs) teaser, then I don't know what is. Paul lives in the gray area. You can see us tomorrow. Yes, indeed. We will... Well, we only have so much to break down because the schedule doesn't officially get released until 8 p.m. I'll be back Friday, folks. So there you go. And that's when you could reveal all of your mathematical equations that you put together with respect to the schedule. All right, that is going to wrap up Wednesday's edition of BBKL. Appreciate everybody tuning in. Part of the Giants platforms everywhere as well as Giants.com slash podcasts. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadows. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. And we'll speak to you on Thursday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Have a good one. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.